In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. This is a podcast all about psychology. I'm a health psychologist and I work predominantly with medically unwell patients. And Amy works with kids and has an interest in working with uh, trauma. Each episode on this podcast, we choose a topic that's not only of interest to us as clinicians, but also one that allows us to talk about different psychological therapies, theories, and concepts that underpin our work as psychologists. The aim is to talk about psychology at a level that is not dumbed down and just to peel back some of the layers in which we psychologists think and work with complex problems. On this episode, we are going to talk about a very interesting topic, borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder is a complex mental condition marked by dysregulation in emotions, behavior, cognitions, and interpersonal relationships. And it's this last domain, the difficulties in interpersonal relationships, that we're going to talk about and focus on in this episode. Particularly, we're going to talk about difficulties in maintaining relationships and how borderline personality and the symptoms associated with it can impact upon parenting. We previously covered borderline personality on episode 25, where we discussed how this disorder presents and the theories behind it. And what we've found is it's consistently been our most listened to episode. And the follow-up episode on dialectical behavior therapy for borderline personality, uh, episode 26, was our, is our fifth most listened to episode. We've also noticed that some of the reviews and emails that we've had have been about borderline PD. So we thought it'd be a good topic to return to. So the plan for this episode is I'm going to give a brief summary on the symptoms of borderline personality. So you don't necessarily have to go back and listen to episode 25 or 26. And then Amy? I'm going to talk about the relationship between expressed emotion and how the dynamic between family members and people with BPD works and what that means for the well-being of family members. Yeah, and then I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that people with borderline personality have in parenting and how that can impact on their children. And then I'll talk about the impact of uh, the symptoms of borderline personality disorder and the dynamics that that can occur on partners of people with BPD. And then as usual, we're going to finish up with our segment, Things We Came Across. Our intent with this episode is to provide information to people who have borderline personality symptoms, but also to family and partners of someone with borderline personality and also to clinicians working with either of these two groups. But in doing so, we do want to acknowledge that borderline personality is somewhat of a controversial diagnosis and that the use of the label uh, borderline can be quite negative or pejorative. Similarly, the way that clinicians can talk about personality problems can seem quite cold Uh, unfeeling or judgmental particularly if you're listening for yourself or for Mm -hmm. a loved one we hope that we don't come across that way in this episode today and we particularly do not intend anything that we say to be upsetting for anyone but we are going to use the label borderline and borderline pd as a shorthand for this cluster of difficult symptoms and problems and also we're going to reflect some clinical uh, perspectives on this population At some point in the future, we're probably going to return to BPT and probably have a proper discussion on some of the controversies and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Because it is quite interesting Mm -hmm. and it has been an area of psychology and psychiatry that has been difficult for all, I think, Mm. really to learn about, understand, manage. 
So Amy, what's your experience with working with someone who has a family member or a partner that has BPD? It's mainly been with kids and teenagers and then working with them and their parents. So it might not immediately be apparent that that's what's going on and then we'll have some family sessions and I'll start to kind of ask some questions about sort of the parents' history or, you know, whether they're receiving any mental health help as well. Uh, The other time that it's come up is people coming in and talking about feeling really distressed about a partner or a friend. Um, So teenagers again, where it's sort of those emerging symptoms and someone will come in and say, like, I'm getting all of these calls with someone who's really suicidal or who's hurting themselves and I'm not sure why it is that they hate me today, but yesterday I was amazing. So often it has sort of a psychoed kind of component of sort of helping them to understand what's going on uh, and then working out whether there's stuff that we need to do together as a whole system. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Probably much the same, you know, you know, working with adults, you often have people who they'll come in and they'll be perplexed about what's happening in a relationship mm. uh, with someone and your clinical you know, ears prick up and you kind of ask some questions around it and you can kind of give some guidance around managing themselves around it. So, you know, if they want to continue with that relationship, how they might do that and mm. or if some cases discussing, you know, is it really the best to stay in this relationship if it's not working for them? And also kind of about working with people who say perhaps grew up with someone like a, a parent mm. to be able to understand what environment they were in and then kind of look at how what they need as an adult and to you know continue to thrive and things like that so it's it's interesting and it comes up and i mean borderline personality is definitely not the only issue that people have a family member or a partner with or impacts on Mm. the way in which they have relationships but it's certainly complex and it's probably a good example of how psychological problems can impact on a broader system Mm. i think in terms of those kind of clinical radar vibes that you're talking about the thing that distinguishes it often is that you get that real sense of confusion and then the intensity of emotion that kind of is where my ears prick up it feels a little bit different sometimes than when people are coming in talking about a family member or a friend or someone who has other mental health things there's not as much confusion often it's kind of like oh yeah they're really flat or they're really anxious yeah but this often comes with that kind of I don't know what's happening. Yeah, well, I mean, that that's probably a good segue into getting into the borderline personality disorder symptoms mm-hmm. because borderline personality is all about dysregulation, as I said before. The DSM-5 talks about it being a pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, self-image, affects, marked impulsivity, and that this begins in early adulthood. And you need to have five or more of the following nine. So frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, a pattern of unstable or intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating extremes of idolization and devaluation, identity disturbance, so markedly persistent, unstable self-image or sense of self, impulsivity that is uh, potentially self-damaging, so spending, sex, substance use, reckless driving, binge eating, recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, threats or self-mutilating behavior, Affective instability due to marked reactivity of mood. So this can be like irritability, anxiety, dysphoria, and chronic feelings of emptiness is the seventh one. Inappropriate or intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. And then the last one, transient stress, paranoid ideation, or severe dissociative symptoms. Mm-hmm. That sort of sounds a bit overwhelming to hear. And what I thought I'd just quickly run through is it perhaps an easier way to understand borderline personality and why it sort of fits in with this idea of 
the confusion thing mm. that we've been talking about. Because uh, so Marsha Linehan, who wrote and created dialectal behavior therapy for borderline personality, so that's episode 26 if you're interested in that, she talked about borderline personality reformulating these symptoms into areas of dysregulation. So you have emotional dysregulation, so that's emotional instability and anger, interpersonal dysregulation, so unstable relationships, efforts to avoid loss, conflictual relationships, weak social support, interpersonal problems that are paramount to that person, mm. and passive interpersonal problem solving. And if you worked with someone with borderline personality, that's a lot of the sessions that mm. you have around that. Behavioral dysregulation, so suicidal threats, self-harm, substance use, cognitive dysregulation, so problems in thinking such as like rigid thinking, black and white thinking, paranoid thinking and self-dysfunction so unstable self-image low self-esteem those mm. kinds of things so borderline personality i think is sort of this problem of dysregulation mm. so that should give you a baseline understanding of the symptoms of borderline personality great so where are you taking it so i'm going to talk about families in a general sense and a particular component of relationships which is expressed emotion the article i'm going to take you through is called the relationship between expressed emotion and well-being for families and carers of a relative with borderline personality disorder by bailey and grenier this is an australian study from 2015 in personality and mental health in terms of the background for this the authors speak about how early research identified the role of family in the development of BPD. So there's often discussions around abuse, parenting difficulties, trauma, as well as biopsychosocial factors, which in psychology we talk about how that there are multiple paths to experiencing a mental health issue and that often it's a combination of biological factors, things like genetics, diet, environment, that sort of thing, uh, psychological, so thinking patterns, coping styles, things like that, and then social, so the relationships you have with other people. And all of those things together combine to create an environment where you may go on to develop a mental health condition. So families are involved in the development of BPD, but then we also know that the family environment can impact recovery. In other disorders, it's been found that families with high expressed emotion impacts recovery negatively. So expressed emotion is about behaviours and, and attitudes which are hostile, uh, critical and have sort of emotional over-involvement. So there's lots of anxious watching, worrying, that sort of thing. So they talk about expressed emotion is like a family having high expressed emotion and low expressed emotion. Mm. So a high expressed emotion family would be? Uh, so it would be family members who are really um, emotionally invested in one another's lives and decisions and sort of day to day. You know, it might be family members who are really worried about what's happening for someone in their family. They're sort of monitoring their critical if they do the wrong thing, that sort of thing. Low is the other end of that and families are along a spectrum. It was a concept that I first heard of in relation to schizophrenia and then I, it was mm. interesting because it sort of, it seemed to me, I mean, maybe it's not accurate, but it's a dropped out of favour. Mm. But then in, in more recent years, I've actually come across a few articles. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. It's yeah. sort of one of those concepts that comes in and out. Yeah. In terms of BPD, they found different results. So what they found was that criticism and hostility didn't have an impact on someone's recovery over a period of a year whereas it was detrimental for other conditions and conversely to those other conditions they found that emotional over-involvement in terms of that sort of like anxious worried preoccupation that sort of thing was associated with better outcomes at one year 
So they sort of hypothesised that people with BPD find overprotection, anxious concern and extreme emotional closeness quite validating and helpful in their recovery. So we know that for people with BPD, that kind of closeness of family members is helpful. Mm-hmm. But what we don't know is the impact on the family members. So what's interesting is that the previous research into this has found that there's a whole bunch of brain activity for people with BPD that's there that isn't there for people with depression or healthy controls when they receive criticism and comments that are more emotionally kind of over-involved, so anxious, that sort of thing. For people with BPD, it activates an area of the brain associated with reward. So it's kind of a, a pleasurable thing. But people with BPD report that these comments are distressing. And so there's kind of a mismatch between what's subjectively reported and then what brain activation tells us. Mm. So essentially these authors highlight that, you know, it's it's all over the shop and it's kind of like, is this helpful? We think that maybe it's helpful for people with BPD, but what's it like for the other people around them? So what you're saying to me is that there's a pattern of family over-involvement mm-hmm. that works well for the person with borderline personality Mm. but this paper is going to be looking at actually what's the impact of that on the people who don't have bpd within the family unit yeah Yeah. so they were interested in speaking to people any sort of carers that were involved with someone with bpd and so they conducted a survey with 280 carers a third of them were the mother of someone with bpd a third were a partner 15 percent were a child with someone with bpd and then the rest was a mix of sort of siblings fathers other relatives They'd been providing care to someone with BPD for an average of 12.4 years, and some of them had been caring for someone with BPD for up to 59 years. Yep. 71% were female. They got them to complete a bunch of measures. One was a screening instrument for borderline personality disorder that was sort of a carer report of observed Mm behaviours to check that the carers who were involved did actually have a relative who had these symptoms. They did a family questionnaire that looked at criticism and over-involvement, They did an assessment of burden, a mental health inventory, and then they had a bunch of qualitative items about what the experience was like. They found that the support for carers was reasonably low in that only two-thirds had had someone explain the diagnosis, so a lot of them were kind of, you know, finding their way on their own. And although 90% of them had sought out their own support to deal with this, less than half were satisfied with the support that they were offered. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so that gets at that thing that we're talking about, which is that people don't often, can't identify from a label perspective what it mm. is. They know that something's up. Yeah. And then they often will go and seek support. But imagine if they don't know what's up and the clinician's not clued into it, then they would actually be dissatisfied because they wouldn't be getting help. Exactly. Like they wouldn't be getting what they need. Exactly. In terms of these results, I did want to just do one little bit of sort of kudos to the authors. I don't think that I've seen results presented in such a easily understandable way in quite some time. So they provided stats, but then at the end of each paragraph after providing the stats, they then said, so this means this. Wow. Which you never see in papers. And it was such a pleasure to read. So, <laughs> so well done, Bailey and Grenier. It's lovely. <laughs> 
So on average, carers reported elevated criticism and emotional over-involvement. So they were more highly critical and anxious, worrying, watching, etc. of their family members with BPD than what you'd find in a regular sample. The carers in this study reported elevated criticism. So they were more critical of their family member with BPD than what would normally show up in questionnaires of family members and how they felt towards the people around them. They were also more emotionally over-involved. So they had the worry, the anxiety, the sort of overprotectiveness. Yep. They found a relationship of this with age. So they found that the emotional over-involvement was higher for carers of a younger person with BPD. And they found that the criticism was higher when there was a younger carer looking after an older relative. Yep. And that this was also related to longer duration of care. So the longer you'd been looking after someone, the more critical you were of them. Yeah, so basically saying like family members, they are worried, emotionally involved Mm -hmm. and feel sort of more negative towards someone with BPD. Yeah, they get sort of worn out. Then then otherwise you'd find this is worse than someone who's been looking after someone for longer or looking after someone, like so say if you're a a son looking after a mother or something like that. Exactly. The carers endorsed significantly higher burden than other researchers found with carers of people with other mental health conditions. And this was a really large effect size. So for the stats nerds out there, it was a Cohen's D of 1.88. Yeah, right. So, I mean, that would get at the fact that borderline personalities we've talked about previously, there's a lot, in some cases, borderline personality, there's, you know, they're frequently suicidal, Mm -hmm. they will have suicidal inpatient admissions, Mm -hmm. there'll be drug use, there'll be all sorts of sort of chaos and problems that unfortunately they find themselves in. Yeah. This is sort of demonstrating that carers can get caught up in that, I guess. Absolutely. And there was also another relationship with age for this one where the the burden was higher for carers of a young person with BPD. So how would you interpret that? Well, I wondered about whether the carers, you know, they didn't pick apart who the carers were for that, but I'm thinking more around sort of parents looking after younger people with BPD, that sort of thing. It's also that BPD can be more chaotic at the start of when it's first developing mm, mm. Um, before there's treatment and adequate supports and things in place and that could be a function of age as well. Yeah, It's not something that was kind of pulled apart. Just under two-thirds of participants endorsed mental health symptoms themselves that were consistent with clinical mood or anxiety disorders. So this wasn't related to any of the sort of age factors and it wasn't related to the length of relationship either. So mm. there's a large proportion of carers who are struggling with their own mental health as well. It found that higher emotional involvement was related to greater burden and to reduced care and mental health. So that kind of aspect of being of monitoring and anxiously watching and checking and all of that sort of protectiveness has quite a negative impact on Mm. on carers. I'd like to read out a qualitative example from a mother that went along with these kind of ratings and she said I'll do anything to help her I read research and will fight to get her the best treatment but I find that her issues become all I can think about sometimes it's hard to find a good balance of my needs and helping her to navigate life yeah there's this kind of overwhelming consuming sort of element to it and it really dovetails with my experience working with cancer patients and Mm. family members of cancer patients where I work predominantly I work with the patients themselves Mm. we don't have capacity to look after the family members Mm. but I will often speak to the family members in a sort of a more informal way whilst they're waiting in the waiting room and whilst I'm trying to find the patient and sometimes I'll often do some of my best work will be 
having a you know a 10 minute chat with a family member mm. on the side and talking to them about you need to look after yourself mm. this is consuming i can see that you're really worried that's a life-threatening illness situation and i'd imagine this is it's exactly the same for carers of someone with BPD and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got the similar intensity. You can see how that would happen and how it would be difficult to look after yourself in that environment. Like you can definitely see being so worried about someone that you care about. that. Yeah, yeah you, you would feel either like I can't leave that person alone hmm. or I just need to be available all the time. And in yeah. some cases they would actually need to be. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there'd be the anxiety about I probably could go out but to go out is actually more anxiety provoking for me. It's actually not helpful. Yeah. On average, carers high in emotional over-involvement endorse the clinical level depression anxiety symptoms, whereas those who were low in emotional over-involvement didn't. So the ones who didn't have so much of that hovering kind of element there didn't then uh, experience depression and anxiety. So in summary, the sort of high emotional over-involvement is related to an increased feeling of burden and to mental health problems for the carer. And that was regardless of whether they were biologically related or not. So that was for partners as well as for parents, kids, Mm. whatever. And high criticism was also associated with greater burden, emotional over-involvement and in reduced mental health. So in general, that kind of dynamic of it all sort of fueling one another, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So the results fit with prior research on the emotional impact of caring for someone with BPD and really highlighted that kind of conflicting feelings of love and care and then anger and stress that can go with it. Yeah. There's a lot of push-pull kind of dynamic that can happen and then the risk of suicidality and self-harm can be pretty difficult and overwhelming for family members as well as the person with BPD. Mm. So you can see how this kind of dynamic sets up and kind of perpetuates. A person with BPD would feel that criticism. Absolutely. And that can feed stuff and it can be misinterpreted as people going, well, you know, my family doesn't care about me and all that kind of stuff. The families do care, Mm. but it can be... uh, just hard to manage that just kind of gets at the flavor at how is complex this system Mm. can be they did have a couple of recommendations they suggested that because there's a tension between what's beneficial for someone with bpd and what's beneficial for the family that collaborative treatment is ideal where if possible you can help to balance the needs between a carer and a client with bpd so helping them navigate that process So what does that mean? It probably would be family therapy or couples therapy or things like that to navigate the intensity of what someone with BPD might need and then also how those family members can create boundaries and have a step back. If someone with borderline personality fears rejection, Mm -hmm. fears abandonment, but then say a family member might need some respite or might need to have an hour or two a day where they're not on call. Exactly. And so it would be about a family navigating that and saying, look, these are the rules Mm. and this change will actually improve everyone's life and navigating that. And so that that's a successful transition, not so that the person with BPD feels rejected and the person who doesn't have BPD is is frustrated that they can't get a break. Exactly. And both people are unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. And because that kind of conversation is difficult to have and and has that high tension and high... um, 
sort of emotionality to it, then their recommendation was to have support with doing that. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that they recommended was that carers might benefit from external support and interventions. Uh, we've got a bit of a list of resources for family, and so we'll pop that in the episode notes and on the website as well. There's some great things online and information and things like that if that's an issue for you. Yeah, and if you're listening and you do know of a great resource, mm. you can let us know at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com or on Twitter and we can tweet that out. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. So for me, mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about the impacts of BPD on parenting and on children. I found the most beautifully written review article. Okay. This one was so well organized. <laughs> so you know when you're like, you know when you're doing a document and it's like point one, mm-hmm. but then you've got multiple points in that point one. Mm-hmm. So it's like point one two, point, point yeah. one two one, point one two one two, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. It was it was like that. It was so pleasing. Amy and I have OCPD. It's fine. It's normal. (laughs) The paper is called Systematic Review of the Parenting and Outcomes Experienced by Offspring of Mothers with Borderline Personality Pathology. It's in Clinical Psychology Review in 2016 by Julie Iden and colleagues from the University of Warwick in the United Kingdom. So they reviewed 10,000 abstracts. Wow. Actually, 10,067, I think. That's important. And they found... 101 articles that met their criteria and then they reviewed those articles and then they included of that 33 that were on parenting and outcomes in children of mothers who have borderline personality or borderline personality symptoms. I think there was a previous review that just looked at borderline PD Mm -hmm. and then what they've done is they've included, they've casted the net a bit wider. So if you're not really sure what that means is you can think about personality disorders as categorical, you have it or you don't. But really, personality is a more of a dimensional thing. And so, someone can be high on extroversion or high on introversion or neuroticism somewhere, but like it can be graded up. Mm. It's not... It's not a black and white. You are an extrovert. You are an introvert. Yeah. It's, it's sort of fairly rare that that's the case. Mm. So, this kind of reflects that. also means that you would get more research. Mm-hmm. So, it's a bit, you get a bit more findings, I think. They talk about that borderline personality is a pervasive functional impairment with insecure attachment patterns, that parenting may be particularly hard for women who have got borderline personality symptoms. Mm. Women with borderline personality are more likely to be separated, divorced, Mm -hmm. or never married. If that's the case, it's harder to parent just anyway, Mm. right? If you're on your own. If you're on your own, right? And parenting is really hard Mm. (laughs) as a a parent myself. it's, It's not easy. It's not easy. And to do it on your own is hard and then do it on your own with other problems going on is much harder, right? And those with BPD may have limited emotional, social and finances. So, you know, it just makes it harder, right? Mm -hmm. So they were interested to look at this area because they wanted to look at kind of factors that are involved in the transmission of psychopathology to children from parents and also identify areas that could be useful for intervention. So basically, like, how do we improve parenting? You know, if someone has difficulty parenting, how can we do that better? Sure. There were a lot of research findings. Uh, I'm going to kind of just take you through sort of the main highlights of what they found mm-hmm. because, like I said, there was a lot yeah. of stuff. It was really, really great to read. Generally, mothers with borderline personality, they can appear less sensitive more intrusive, more overprotective, more hostile, and show less engagement. So they're more likely to have maladaptive interactions with their children than non-BPD mothers. Mm -hmm. They would have role reversal. So that would be, say, a child looking after Mm -hmm. a mother Mm -hmm. rather than the mother looking after a child. Boundary confusion. 
Uh, so I guess that would be kind of sharing inappropriate details. Mm-hmm. It was probably what would come to mind. What would yeah, or not respecting the child's wants or needs or their boundaries oh, okay, as yeah, well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's why I have a child psychologist on the show. <laughs> uh, and fearful and hesitant behaviour mm. by the parent rather than sort of like being secure. They talked about this dichotomy of over-involvement versus under-involvement. And I think this was the main thing that I kind of picked up on that mm. fit very well with my clinical experience is that someone with BPD can have over-involvement, they'll be overprotective, and they'll be inhibiting someone's behaviour, their autonomy. And then they can also like flip to under-involvement, so they'll be disengaged, they won't be emotionally supportive, and yeah. then they can also be hostile. Yeah. So that... If you are a child of someone, of a mother with BPD, you might experience this kind of weird mix of behaviour, whereas other parents... It's quite unpredictable. Yeah, and other parents might just be more like boring. (laughs) They're the same thing over and over and over. All all the fluctuations are really, really minor. What was interesting is that they think that this is unique to mothers with BPD, like versus other psychological problems, Mm -hmm. mothers with other psychological problems. You know, there's this... That fluctuating, you mean? Yeah, the fluctuating and the reluctance to promote independence Mm. as a parenting behaviour, right? Those things seem to be unique as far as I can tell. The authors emphasise that this is not because mums with BPD don't care about their kids. Mm. It's actually precisely the opposite, right? They do have a nurturing instinct. The studies definitely show that overprotectiveness is driven by a concern Mm. for the child's health and safety. And frequently women with BPD have had difficult upbringings and so they are very very conscious Mm. about sort of more hyper vigilant of what dangers might be around yeah yeah so basically like the mums want to parent well Mm. but they lack the necessary tools to do it Mm. like if you grew up in an environment where you yourself had bad parenting Mm. then you might not have learned that right and you've also got like an emotional difficulty dysregulation whatever Mm. and so it's just harder for you to execute it Mm. properly i mean and i can say as a parent when i'm stressed under stressful situations it is harder to parent in a good way because you've both got to manage your own emotions and what's going on and then also manage these little people who are yeah and the great thing about parenting is that if you're having a bad day frequently your children will have a bad day (laughs) yeah and and so the system feeds in on itself yeah it's really, really complicated. And so if you have trouble managing yourself, mm. then it's going to be more and more difficult. Mm. It's the kind of the way I understand it yeah. and the way, I, the way I've experienced it. And I don't have BPD, yeah. but yeah, I've certainly been stressed and thought, yeah, I didn't really handle that that well yeah. later on, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, and most people listening to this will have had, a, who've got kids will have had an experience of that. Absolutely. And they would have had an experience of their parents being that way, yeah. whether their parents had BPD or not. Mm-hmm. Borderline symptoms of emotional dysregulation, symptom severity and comorbid psychopathology and mother's own childhood experiences seem to be important and add to the difficulties that BPD mums face when parenting. I've just written, parenting is hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. More care, Hmm. 2019. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was interesting was that some emerging evidence with the use of studies that had control groups was that maternal BPD is specifically associated with overprotection also, I thought it was interesting was control through guilt. Mm. So controlling a child's behavior by making them feel guilty mm. about what they do. Yep. And that's sort of something that 
I would generally say you should try and avoid as a parent, mm. right? You can try and get them to control their behavior with other mechanisms, but violence you don't want to use and no. guilt, shame, probably yeah. number two, avoid. Yeah. And then also like fearful, hesitant behavior was one of the other things. So the second part of the results talk about the impacts on children and they suggest that borderline PD or having a mum with borderline PD symptoms can have particular impacts on their children. So high anxiety. So one of the examples of that is that if you have a parent who's overprotective, that's more likely to create a child that is anxious, Mm. right? So, you know, there's this idea of like helicopter parenting and stuff like that, and that is actually a genuine thing. And the general kind of rationale for that is that kids take cues about the environment from their parents and Mm. so that then the cue that they're getting from their parents is the environment isn't safe rather than this is under control i've got this yeah so he's like be be afraid of the environment Mm. and they also the protective parent Mm. uh, because dads can definitely be overprotective also will say no i'll do that for you darling yeah or don't go up there that's not safe and so you're actually communicating directly the child cannot handle it yeah, you can't cope with this you can't handle it. so you not only communicating that the world is dangerous but it's also that you're incompetent mm. and so it's like a double whammy mm. that's why i don't give my children any help at all yeah yeah you just sit back and let them watch the world <laughs> behavior problems social anxiety and also bpd can be led to from mm. having a parent with bpd mm-hmm. There is considerable evidence that there is a relationship between maternal bpd and individual groups of symptoms that are BPD. So mm-hmm. emotional dysregulation, for example, in offspring of okay, yep. BPD mums. And this pattern's seen across the developmental stages, infancy, childhood, and adolescence, mm-hmm. right? So generally, offspring of parents with BPD or mums with BPD are at higher risk for psychopathology, but BPD in particular. Mm-hmm. Like you were talking about with the framework of biopsychosocial, mm-hmm. they talk about the biosocial developmental model they've just taken out the psycho they suggest that infants of mothers with BPD may inherit biological vulnerability to emotionality and negative affectivity and that other factors may also impact so in utero stress or substance Mm. exposure that kind of thing that sort of epigenetic thing as well yeah I was trying to remember that word because you you talked about it in the DOD pod right this combined with parental invalidation is thought to be a major factor in transmitting borderline PD Mm. from mother to child so the way I understand that is it's insensitive rejecting and hostile parenting Mm -hmm. how would you describe invalidation like that and also with that kind of I guess ignoring of someone's needs or devaluing of their needs that what they want isn't actually worthwhile isn't important isn't you know something that should be given yeah or even just or even now you say oh i'm upset you're not you're not upset yeah but doing that consistently consistently all of the time yeah Yeah. so this and emotional dysregulation can then lead to a child having dysregulation in behavior cognitions emotions and then in turn that can result in a full-blown borderline personality Mm -hmm. it all sounds doom and gloom (laughs) Importantly, not all children and mothers with BPD develop psychopathology mm. or borderline personality. It's not so, a one-to-one. No, yeah. far from it. And it's really, really important. And, and perhaps I should have started off this section with that. But it's really, really important that a lot of people who have a, a mother with borderline personality develop up to not have psychological problems, mm. right? And definitely not everyone has BPD some of the resilience factors, mainly secure attachment, mm. right? So that seems to prevent transmission of symptoms from mother to child. Attachment security is found to be a buffer. It seems to enhance positive emotional regulation strategies in adolescence. Mm. 
And I think the thing about attachment is that it used to be thought that it was only about attachment with mum, but that in recent years, kind of looking more, that you can have a range of different attachment figures. And so it might be that, yes, your attachment with mum or your relationship with mum is chaotic, but you have a secure attachment with dad or other relative who's sort of a stable figure in your life who can provide that consistency yeah so there's other people can buffer yeah you would speak to somebody say well i had a chaotic mother Mm. but you know i had a really close relationship with a sibling yeah or my dad was always there for me or i had an uncle or an aunt or something like that or a grandmother you know so it is really really interesting and people frequently would do find someone or Mm. someone finds them to look Mm. after exactly and it can be even a teacher what is interesting is that insecure attachment is related to adolescent BPD features and the link between those two mm-hmm. is low use of positive emotional regulation strategies. Okay. Yeah, so that's sort of the mechanism that they think how it works. It's, it's attachment and that leads to being able to regulate your emotions in a positive way so rather than, say, a negative way, which would be, what, I don't know, mm, substance use. Substance use, self-harm, <laughs> self-harm uh, withdrawal, that sort of thing. Yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. Whereas positive emotional regulation strategies would be... Uh, connecting to other people, uh, looking after yourself. Yeah, those kinds of things. Mindfulness, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah. too complicated yeah. if you sort of think about that. So that's that's a review. I thought I'd also go through quickly an article that is titled Effectiveness of a Brief Parenting Intervention for People with Borderline PD. Mm-hmm. It's a 12-month follow-up of clinician implementation in practice. So this was by Annalise Gray in Advances in Mental Health in 2019. Because I, I thought it was it all sounded a bit doom and gloom mm. and I kind of wanted to say, look, hey, what we know is that there is intervention out there, right? And there are ways in which, so if you struggle with this problem or if you know someone that does struggle with this problem, there is a way in which things can be improved and managed. So NH and MRC guidelines say that having BPD doesn't mean you cannot be a good parent. Mm. And like I was, I was just saying, having a mother or father with BPD doesn't mean you'll have problems yourself. But it does make things more challenging. Mm. There's been limited research on interventions. And so this paper kind of discusses an intervention called parenting with personality disorder to help people with PDs. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go into detail around it, but this intervention covers three key areas. So child protection and family safety. So that would be including a family crisis plan. Mm. The second module in it is improving communication between the parent and child. So that would be skill, including skills to talk to children about a parent's mental health and protecting the child from these symptoms. And then the third one is improving parenting skills and strategies. So this would include mindful parenting skills and reinforcing the primary importance of a parent having mental health treatment Mm. and stay engaged within that. One of the problems with someone with BPD is they frequently drop out of treatment. They don't stay in treatment Mm. or they stay in treatment, but they're not really addressing their problems. Mm. And so, oh, no, I'm fine. Everyone else is not. Mm. The same kind of relational patterns play out. With 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 a therapist. Yes, totally. And I've certainly had that experience where you've got the problems that they report in their relationships just manifest themselves wholesale Mm. within the therapy room. Exactly. And which makes it very interesting as a clinician to work with that. Mm. And it's quite satisfying when you can kind of get it working well. The idea that they did with this program is that it could be a three-module standalone or it could be incorporated into standard treatment. They did like a mixed methods, qualitative, quantitative evaluation of this program with 12 clinicians 12 months post their training. 
generally they rated the intervention as really useful, it's flexible, it's beneficial to the clients and that kind of thing. What I thought was interesting was that they, the clinicians who used such an intervention chose to use it with patients who had low apprehension in talking about parenting mm-hmm. and also the patients themselves were willing to engage around those conversations. Mm. So you sort of, I guess it'd be, you'd be picking easier targets mm. if you're the People clinician. People were kind of primed to discuss those things. Yeah, and then mostly the, the clinicians who use this program use not as a oh we're going to do three modules of blah 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 like it would they would incorporate into dpt or whatever it is Mm. that they were doing so they had three themes in the qualitative analysis there was noticing parenting improvements so basically that mindful parenting helped parents be present in the moment with their child so if you know if you're struggling with being distressed or being angry or Mm. all those kinds of things it's hard to be present and the quote was you know when mum's feeling really overwhelmed she's not able to connect with the children in that moment the concepts in this module about being mindful and present helped reframe that nice makes sense then there's the helping parents de-escalate reducing emotional reactivity and communicate better normalizing parenting challenges so basically like what i was saying before you know helping parents realize they aren't alone that these challenges are across everyone Mm. parenting Mm. the second theme was that having a manualized approach would helps clinicians be effective in addressing these problems basically you have fact sheets and a video and that meant that you could normalize stuff Mm. and it's not confrontational it's like this is what we found you can be empathetic around it and then they they talked about third theme which was that clinicians who had trained using such a program it helped improve their work and attitudes more generally with these patients like because it sort of sounded like to me like they had a better understanding of the problems that they thought and so people were not as judgmental so one of the things that can happen with clinicians working with people with borderline personality is they can get burnt out Mm. and they can be very judgmental and dismissive and there's a lot of literature that sort of shows that say emergency departments are not good places for people with borderline personality Mm. because emergency departments staff can be extremely judgmental because they've they're very busy and not well equipped to deal with mental health crises this improving clinicians awareness of parenting challenges seems to really really help with mm. their existing therapy nice. so i thought that was just a nice sort of let's just end on a high <laughs> like it <laughs> yeah so where are we going with you to finish up i've got an article on partners of people with bpd it's called Partners of Individuals with Borderline Personality Disorder, a systematic review of the literature examining their experiences and the supports available to them by Greer and Cohen in the Harvard Review of Psychology 2018. The authors of this paper very kindly sent me a PDF when I wasn't able to hunt it down online and was desperate to read it. So thank you very much for that. 30% of people with BPD are in long-term relationships, but the relationships are often impacted by the rapidly changing emotions that are inherent in BPD and the tendency to fluctuate between that idealizing and devaluing that we've spoken about. Now, people with BPD report a higher rate of relationships ending, and it's been found that the severity of BPD symptoms is related to an increased level of distress in close relationships. The reverse has also been found, where being in a stable romantic relationship is associated with fewer BPD symptoms and improved functioning. The research tends to focus on familial caregivers more than partners, and in general what has been found with mental health 
concerns is that partners who are carers have a distinct role from other family members and the support that's designed for family members often doesn't meet the needs of partners. So these researchers wanted to explore the experiences of partners and have a look at the supports that were available through a systematic review. They wanted to look as well at the gap between what the partners report that they experience and what they need uh, and then what services are available. Mm, I think that this topic perhaps out of the three topics that we're covering it's the one that perhaps interests me the most as a clinician because it's probably the one that I deal with the most mm. as, as a clinician which is interesting isn't it I wonder why that is well okay because I work with adults and so they would you know come across people who are yeah. currently experiencing have experienced it before we get into the results method wise it was pretty similar to what you described sort of filtering out studies that didn't quite fit what they included were articles that focused on partners experience and they use both gray literature as well as literature so what that means is things that aren't published in scientific journals so it could be an online report for example and this is often included in research like this when there isn't a huge amount of research available that's published in academic journals and so it kind of opens it up to include other sources. Across the 13 articles that focused just on partners experience they found three different themes. The first one was the emotional effects on partners. Similarly to what we spoke about before partners reported symptoms of anxiety and depression. They also reported guilt and this was accompanied by poor coping behaviours so not knowing quite how to manage this for themselves. They also had reactions to their partner's emotions so there was a lot of denial, withdrawal, helplessness and feeling overwhelmed reported by by the partners across research. The second theme was dual roles so a kind of tension between being a caregiver and a partner and a feeling that sometimes the caregiving obligation dominated over their role as a romantic partner and with this kind of went a loss of professional and social identities similarly to the general family study about feeling sort of consumed by this yeah the third one was a lack of control over the situation so the main source of stress for partners was the unpredictability of their partner's emotions and behaviors which left them scrambling to try and understand they described their relationships as stressful with high conflict poor relationship satisfaction and a lot of negative communication the partners also felt uninformed, unheard and unsupported by the mental health system. The most positive outcomes for partners were for those who had been integrated into the system and had been able to sort of balance the positive and negative aspects of the information that was available. Mm. So they kind of accepted where things were at. Yeah, but also that accepted by the mental health system, whereas I think that yeah. partners of people with BPD can I think can also be viewed negatively or mm. kind of with sort of like why is that person with this person that exactly kind of thing can yeah. be that can be true across many mental health mm. problems not just BPD where it's perplexing they also described how their relationships with others had suffered because of their relationship with someone with BPD so this was around a lack of understanding of from other people about their partner's issues and then also how their partner's symptoms had negatively impacted on shared relationships. The final part of that was that often there was isolation due to their absorption in supporting their partners. So their other relationships were neglected because they were spending time looking after their partners. Yeah, I mean, that was the first thing that came to mind was yeah. that, they, that this partner would then, if this is going on, they're heavily involved in the care of their partner or if they're heavily involved in managing fluctuating emotions or dealing with that, making sure that 
they're okay and that the partner is okay and that's tending to the relationship because the relationship's important to them and that kind of stuff, mm. that that could take a lot of time. And given the element of being worried about abandonment with BPD as well, you can see how tension around that or, or times when partners may want to spend time with friends or with mm. other people, that that could be quite triggering and, and full of conflict. Yeah, like just sort of inadvertently triggering, yeah, you know, that exactly. kind of thing. Like I, my heart goes out to partners with who are man- managing in these kind of complicated scenarios. Yeah, it's not straightforward because at all. It, because it's not straightforward. It's not straightforward for the person with BPD either, but no. you could just sort of instantly sort of say, oh, you know, you're dealing with guilt, dealing with denial, withdrawal, you know, there's loss of identity, loss of friends and that kind of stuff. You could see how it could spiral. Do these results kind of fit with what you've seen yeah, clinically? Abs- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah me too. That kind of um, absorption and investment and kind of wanting things to go well, but then yeah, also yeah, finding definitely. things confusing and and um, confronting. And because cause when the things are good, mm. they, they're often really, really good. Yeah. And so, you know, that's... And I think that that's part of the frustrating component of it mm. for people. Yeah. Exactly. In terms of the supports or interventions that were available, the researchers found four different interventions that have been researched but the existing supports that were identified were skills-based programs that were mainly directed at families more generally there was one exception to that which was couples dbt which i hadn't heard of before had you heard of that no No. which sounded like it merged a bit of couples therapy with then the dbt approach so both the person with bpd and their partner were taught the same kind of emotion regulation strategies and things like that. Mm. Yeah. I'd also imagine that with, this is me just hypothesizing, mm. components of DBT and the theory around DBT, particularly around boundary setting, would mm. be really, really useful. So that's that kind of, I'm not going to help you. Mm. I think you can do this and I'm not going to hold your hand. I think you can go and do it. And so giving a partner or a family member Mm. the permission to step back and to push the person with borderline personality symptoms Mm. to go and do something autonomously, which the person with BPD doesn't want to do, like because it it fills them with anxiety. That Mm. makes sense. But the same way that when you parent a child, you say, no, no, you can definitely go down that slide by yourself. You don't need me to go do it. A similar kind of a similar kind of thing, and then once they do it a couple of times, they actually get it right. Yeah. Or it's like you don't need me to tie your shoelaces every day. Mm. I've taught you how to do it. Mm. You can do it. Yeah. And you know, being that pushing someone a bit, mm. but then actually that's beneficial for everybody. So it's like breaking that sort of dependence. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of comparing their experiences to interventions, the authors had a few points around this. So one was that skills can be useful in reducing strain so having those kind of tools available and allows people to be able to coach their partners but then the flip side of that is that then it can reinforce a parental kind of dynamic Mm. or a, a thing where the partner needs to provide those prompts so it's about how to upskill people without putting them even more into that role or yeah. kind of inadvertently reinforcing that yeah. without meaning to. Because what you don't want is the partner to be a substitute therapist. Exactly. Right. You don't you wouldn't even want a parent to be. No. Although it's probably a little bit of a better role because mm. really There's that caregiving, caregiving, caregiving element. element. But like a partner. It's just to be a partner. Yeah. 
don't know, they do stuff together and, and fall in love and, and yeah. you know, bicker occasionally and, and yeah. all that good stuff that human life is about, not sort of being a caregiver all the time. Exactly. In terms of the skills programs that were aimed at anybody, there was more psychoeducation than the couples DBT approach, but it wasn't partner-specific information. And so the authors felt that there was this kind of gap in that, you know, basic information about borderline would be helpful but that in terms of some of the strategies and the dynamics and things like that, it needed to be partner specific. And so mm. that was a gap. The last one was that there was limited research for couples DBT, but it appears to be closest to addressing the issues felt by partners. It focuses on emotion regulation, communication strategies, that sort of thing. But one downside of the model is that there's less psychoeducation. So their general conclusion was that no one program that's available addresses the issues that are most important for partners and that there needs to be a partner specific support program developed and that this isn't kind of a straightforward one type of approach that probably it needs to include multiple elements Mm. so ideally would include psychoeducation things around bpd around sort of what kind of things were common experiences there would also be group work or linking to online forums for partners awesome peer work they mentioned about how because there are so few partners often involved in support groups for families or for carers or people with bpd that online might be a way to sort of tap into Mm. partner specific things because often they're in the minority in a group yeah and then also that i think that a lot of partners might feel a bit of shame Mm. around talking about their partner and feel like they might be going against their partner by exactly. being part of that. And so whereas I imagine online might be a bit easier. That's a bit of distance. Yeah, a bit yeah. of distance. Anonymity, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then the last component they recommended was couples therapy to help rebalance the relationship to kind of work through those issues as it crops up. Mm. So quite a comprehensive approach. In a way, the comprehensive element of it reminded me a bit of DBT of that sort of including individual group phone coaching but then i think also that kind of gets at that so anyone who's listening to it is sort of saying listening to this who's in this situation is to sort of that highlights that hey look there's lots of avenues that could be helpful but also that it is a complex problem and that's why there's a lot of avenues that would be helpful and that it is worth thinking about that you don't have to do this on your own. Mm. And probably as well that, you know, if one thing hasn't quite worked for you, that trying other things. Yeah, maybe it's an additive thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, rather than just picking one approach. Mm. Mm. So final thoughts as we've kind of gone through that. We've kind of gone through kids, we've gone through parents, we've gone through partners. I think that the thing that we keep on coming back to is complexity. Yeah. And that really it's no wonder that the people around someone with BPD Feel, often feel confused and conflicted yep. and all that sort of thing. It's something that's confusing for someone with BPD, let alone someone on the outside mm. who perhaps can't see the all of the inner workings of what's going on. Yep. I think the other thing is that again and again what keeps coming up is that kind of you can't do it alone, you need support to be yep. able to do this. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad carer or a bad parent mm. or whatever it might be or that there's something wrong with what you're doing. It just means that this is difficult yep. and yep. support might make things easier for you. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to someone today hmm. who in this sort of situation and I said, the reason that you're finding it hard is because it's hard. Mm. It's not because of any th- anything else. Yeah, it just is. Because a lot of people will have experiences in life where they find something hard, but it's because they didn't do something right or mm. because something bad has happened. And, you know, there's all these kind of complex things. But really often I think about it, it's like 
if you find it difficult, it's probably because it is difficult. Mm. And the other thing I would say on top of that is that you cannot ever look after anyone if you don't look after yourself. Yeah. And trust us, we're clinicians and we our job is looking after people. Mm. And so therapy, I say to a lot of people, is about learning how to be healthily selfish. Mm. So because people say, oh, but isn't it selfish to do this? I said, yeah, that's mm. okay. That's what you need to do. It's all right to be selfish. Mm. It's inappropriate to be selfish all the time, but it's a happy medium. And more often than not, people come into therapy and they're not being selfish enough. Selfish in terms of... Looking after themselves. Taking a lunch break, uh, going and seeing their friends, mm. going and seeing a movie, mm. that kind of stuff. Yeah, the basics. Yeah, that kind mm. of stuff. So I really hope that that has given you a summary or a, an overview of some of the like i guess the complexities mm. of what we're, what we're talking about why it's sort of interesting as a clinician to work with and hopefully giving people some um hope as well mm, around absolutely. that there's things that can be done mm. we're going to take a break we are going to take a break and we will be back with things we came across see you soon intuition which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that Suggest reasonable explanations for things. So cheers. Cheers. Uh, I'm having a beer. Amy's uh, having a wine. Having a glass of uh, Coriol Shiraz. Mm, it's beautiful. If, if you've seen the movie um, Sideways, mm-hmm. and there's a bit right at the end where the main character is drinking his most expensive bottle of Pinot. Mm-hmm. I think out of like a polystyrene cup. In like yeah, a, it's not out of a glamorous cup. In like a Maccas or something. And he's just like making these faces. Mm. That's currently how <laughs> Amy's face is with her glass of wine <laughs> at the moment. Oh, fantastic. I mean, I knew I was happy, but... <laughs> so this, is, this is the break where we uh, let our hair down a bit. We tell you all about how you can find us online. Mm. Uh, we're at uh, twoshrinkspod.com. Where you can find podcast descriptions, links to the podcasts themselves. Annually retentive lists. Annually retentive lists. Of, of themes that yeah. are all up to date. So episodes uh, in by number and there's another link where you can look at episodes by topic. And then you can also look at things, things we came across by topic. Or if you want to look, find out some information about ourselves. But you didn't tell people what our Twitter handle is. What's our Twitter They'll handle? be pretty shocked. Like it's revolutionary. That's it. <laughs> two shrinks pod. pod. That's yeah. it. Everything's two shrinks pod. We're keeping it consistent. But yeah, if you've got comments, suggestions, thoughts, ideas. Uh, about uh, anything. About topics that you want us to cover, then do let us know. Or if you like mm. the show, please rate and review the show. We've noticed there's been a whole lot of ratings coming through, mm. uh, particularly in the Australian. You know why? Apple Store. Why is that? It's because of this bit. Like, no one listens to the rest of the pod. They just listen to this bit where I drive you insane. <laughs> they're awkward banter and then they just listen to the things we came across. Exactly. Probably. That's why they're all here. Um, but if you are listening overseas in America or in the UK mm. or anywhere else, really, but um, you can provide us with a rating or a review, uh, particularly a review, that would be great. Mm, we would love it. So we're back from the break. And uh, this is our segment, Things We Came Across, mm. where we talk about an article that we came across this week, this month. This year. This year. Something mm. like that. Yep. Something that's taken our fancy. Something that's a bit more lighthearted. Mm. Mine's light, but not light. Where are you taking us? I subscribe to the BPS, so the British Psychological Society's Research Bulletin, mm-hmm. which for anyone who's interested in 
psychology in a way that's kind of you know easily digestible that sort of thing it's quite interesting sometimes it's stuff that's clinically relevant often I find things that work for this and the one that came out this week had an article on public shaming Mm -hmm. so have you read uh so you've been publicly shamed I was given it at Christmas yeah so like 11 months ago so no (laughs) have not got to it yet it's good it's a book by john ronson and it looks at the impact of public shaming online so you know if someone posts something that's offensive or ignorant or whatever and then everyone piles on and shames them so the impact of what then happens to those to those people yeah it's, it's sort of interesting like watching twitter and things like that there was a post by an australian i guess media person recently about uh how he'd given some money to a carer of some disabled young people mm-hmm. and, you know, slipped them some money to buy them ice cream wherever they were, you know, and he says, oh, you know, that was really, you know, you should do those kinds of things that was really good to do, like really, mm. you know, made everyone feel better. And there was this like, torrent of just crit- criticism about it, mm. which was, I mean, it's sort of interesting to think about some of the issues that was raised, but also like... The volume of it. The volume of it and that this was a well-intended thing. Mm. And it's like, I'm not going to weigh in on anything right or wrong there. I'm just, but it, was, it is interesting, the pylon that, mm. that you're talking about with the shame. And that probably there's been an aspect of that in society always, yeah. but that now it's a public, permanent kind of thing. And international. And international. So one of the the last chapters in Ronson's book is around someone who works to kind of help people erase or move down those things in search histories. Wow. Because when they try and apply for jobs or things like that and an employer does a routine search, then it pops up with that because it's had the most hits rather than their actual work history or anything else. Mm. So it has quite a pervasive effect. But this article, I'm going to talk about the summary that I read mm-hmm. because I wasn't able to access the PDF. Mm-hmm. The article was written by Emily Reynolds and it speaks about some research that was published this year. The title of the research is Outraged but Sympathetic, Ambivalent Emotions Limit the Influence of Viral Outrage. And it was published in Social, Psychological and Personality Science. I mentioned saying that Social, Psychological and Personality Science. <laughs> you answering the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. So there are patterns online of people who say things that are controversial or offensive and then people pile on with anger and disgust. And then often what happens is that the person kind of doubles down and sticks to their position or Mm. apologizes, backs off. These researchers were interested in whether the public shaming actually works, whether it it helps change the narrative or changes what's going on, Mm. or if it just makes people feel sympathy for the person who's been shamed regardless of what they've said. That kind of like, I can't believe that that many people piled on. They did comprehensive research that included seven different studies. And so they showed offensive social media posts to participants and then across different conditions, an element of it was modified. So it either showed two outraged responses underneath the post or 10. And then people were asked questions about, you know, how offensive, how funny, whether they thought about the poster's intention, that Mm. sort of thing. So what they found was that participants' judgment and condemnation of the poster remained stable across conditions. So regardless of how everybody else responded, they still judged them, thought that what they posted wasn't correct, but that people tended to view the larger public response as disproportionate and expressed increased sympathy for the poster, which Mm. is what you would expect. The 
researchers interpreted some of these results that higher levels of outrage made people feel like this was a normal response and so that then they could feel that response, Mm -hmm. that sort Mm -hmm. of outrage and express it, that it was kind of normalised, it was fine. If everyone else is doing it, then it must be okay. Then it must be okay for me to do it. So they continued to do further studies looking at different aspects and found that regardless of how offensive a post was and whether the poster was known or unknown, this same pattern kept Mm. on applying. So Mm. it didn't matter if they were a celebrity or not. People also tended to think that others were less sympathetic and more outraged than they were. So they tended to view themselves more favourably, which makes sense. Mm. And then the question of the research that they kind of left it with was, does viral outrage have some kind of a broader social impact it seems that people have sympathy for the person who posted it Mm. and feel like this was an unfair treatment but does it contribute to the social narrative about how we think about things yeah sort of add to that cohesion do you think you modify your behavior online to avoid that kind of stuff i don't post a huge amount online Mm. i'm quite cautious about what i post i kind of view everything as permanent and that anybody could see it yeah um i know that for example my clients google me yeah and so even though everything's set on private i'm kind of like well if i wouldn't want Mm. you know a 10 year old reading this then i'm not going to post it yeah and i've always had that attitude i think a little bit of it is generational as well like i it wasn't until later on in my teens that the internet came in and that that was a thing. So it was something that I had to figure out. Whereas I wonder whether the same kind of things apply to people who have had it all the time. You've lived in a world where it wasn't there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because I certainly see stuff online and a certain, certain segment of things I'll critique Mm. or comment on. Mm. But then there is a lot of stuff that I, you know, <laughs> I definitely would think about. Uh, I do a lot of screenshotting and sending to people yeah, and commenting the, privately and, but and, not publicly. And, and thinking that the nuance of what I might say mm. would... would uh, all Be the, lost. Or, or, you know, or people would just judge stuff in a particular kind of way and they'd be incorrect or whatever. And But it's like, it would be so unlikely mm. that there'd be an understanding response. It's, this but it's is not, just it's not, not worth, worth it. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. and it's not about playing a victim. And so, but it's just sort of saying, well, you know, there's some stuff where people will get shattered down and there is a, I do think that there is a kind of hurting instinct mm. online about, you know, whatever the cause du jour is. Yeah. You know, the the woke, the whatever the woke du jour is. Mm. Uh, that, everyone follows that. That everyone needs to be understanding and sensitive about hmm. when six, 12 months it's something years different. ago, everyone was really not understanding about it. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? Mm, it is. And I think the permanency of it is the thing that's always bothered me. Yeah, right. That See, I don't think I ever think about the permanency yeah. of that. Yeah, I don't know why it's been something that I've thought about, but mm. it's definitely it's definitely been there of like this is – I've always treated things even when it's sort of been something that in theory you could delete – I've always kind of gone, nah, it's permanent. Mm. You know, I'm more cautious. I'd yeah. say I view a lot more than what I would comment or mention. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably more the other way. Mm. Yeah. Where are you taking us? Uh, you like trying new foods. Yeah. How do you go with new foods? Pretty good. What stops you from trying a new food? Uh, seafood allergy <laughs> is the one thing that gets in the way. Yeah. Like... That's probably the one thing. That plus there's a couple of kind of cuisines or areas. Like I can remember going to this Chinese restaurant and 
there were things still moving in the bowls <laughs> <laughs> and I, cu- I couldn't yeah. do that. Yeah. Like th- some of that kind of stuff. You, is it the visual or is it the, the It's the, the texture smell, and the visual. The, yep. You work with kids, right? Yeah. Uh, do you ever get parents saying, the kids won't, the, like, can you help me with my kids eating Only food? 80 times a day. <laughs> and what's the most common? Most commonly, it's like they've ruled out an entire food group and said, I won't eat that. What about hypothetically, if uh, your children say they like pizza and then you go and get the type mm. of pizza that they like? Yeah. That they've previously eaten on multiple occasions. Yeah, no, but that's not today, right now. <laughs> it's not right now. Yeah. Maybe in this evening. <laughs> and, and then they refuse to eat the thing. Yeah, that's all the time. Oh. Yeah. So, you know. But it's also fluctuating. Like a lot of parents will come in and go, like, they used to eat everything and it was fine. And yeah. then now they don't. I can, from my yeah. own personal thing, I can remember my mum complaining that I would eat everything at other people's houses, but not at hers. <laughs> Yeah, but it so, tastes different at other people's house. The, so. um, and I didn't. I wanted to try things. So, so my experience was buying pizza tonight, and neither child eating. Yeah, well, they ate a little bit, and they, but they it was like they previously ate the pizza from this place, like Fine. without issue, and now it's what was like, wrong with it tonight? Uh, so there was green bits <laughs> on the cheese pizza. <laughs> well, that could have been anything. And poison. And I previously had. Anyway, it's interesting you say that, mm. Amy. Attention- I've got a feeling where this might be going because... <laughs> Attentional biases towards familiar and unfamiliar foods in children, the role of food neophobia in appetite. Mm. It's by Francis Maratos and Paul Staple in the University of Derby. Food neophobia is defined as a personality characteristic in which foods that are uncommon or unknown to the individual are rejected and avoided on sight. Before tasting. Yes. Before you've tasted the chicken feet. Yes. You look at them and go, not yeah. for me. Or before you ta- you try the thing that everyone else is thing. eating and that... That so they might die of imminently. Uh, well, so actually there hasn't been much research into it. Or is that- it just one of those things that's treated as, well, that's just kids? Yeah. Well, so what's interesting is that this study, they looked at the role of visual stimuli hmm. in the mechanism for food neophobia well it's not just familiarity of food they were looking at visual attentional biases and seeing whether they were implicated in this because adults they're less likely to just go on vision alone hmm. and so they do actually think that you know vi- visual stuff would be potentially helpful hmm. to for avoiding poisonous stuff and things like that i was going to explain the re- research methodology hmm. But it involves this like quite complex visual probe task and yeah. stimuli. <laughs> so they did show 70 children stimuli of familiar and unfamiliar fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. and did like a visual task. Okay. And the photographs of the stimuli were displayed as JPEG images, Amy. Mm, um, that's uh, important. Jack's Paint Shop Pro 7 was used to equate the luminescence contrast and background grey. The mean luminescence was 14 CD mm. slash M squared. You know how I love luminescence. Oh. <laughs> That's it. If you've not listened to this pod before, we do like pointing out interesting fact tidbits that are documented in the literature. Look, long story short with this paper, they got them to do this visual probe task, measuring attentional biases towards familiar and unfamiliar fruit and vegetables. And then they got them to do a measure of food neophobia, general neophobia, and a willingness to try. All children appeared to demonstrate an intentional bias towards unfamiliar fruit and vegetable stimuli. And the bias was significantly exaggerated for children. So they were looking at it more? Yep. So I think basically they were sort of like they attend to the unfamiliar Mm. stuff. 
if it's like an unfamiliar fruit, unfamiliar vegetable, they attend to it They're going to pay attention to yep. that. Yep. So basically their response time to the visual task was shorter mm. when the visual task was in the unfamiliar zone of the visual task because mm. you're attending to it. Yep. And there's, so there's in addition that willingness to try food stimuli was inversely correlated with attentional bias to unfamiliar fruits and vegetables. So basically they're saying that the visual aspects of food play an important role in child food neophobia. Or alternatively... What they could have done is ask a sample of parents, yeah. do your children try food that they don't like the look of? And the answer no. would have been 100% no. Science, Amy. <laughs> Science. I also wonder though, right? If um, you don't like the look of food, yeah. would you voluntarily try it? Assuming that we're not talking like a social situation where you can't get out of it. If something looks odd, I are you right in there? Yeah, it is an interesting question, hmm. but it doesn't look odd. <laughs> it was just green herbs on cheese pizza. Dangerous. <sighs> anyway, I'm going to provide Hunter with some therapy, some but we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're not going to do that while we're recording. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to us, everyone. Uh, we will catch you next time. It's our fiftieth episode. Yes, we are extremely excited. We, we are, are. We are going to do a very relaxed fiftieth episode. Yes, check us out for that. Or check out past episodes if this is the first episode you've listened to. And please rate. We've got many hours to catch up on. Get to it. That's it. See you next time. See you. Bye. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. As we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws.